What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Tattooed Historian Show. My name is John. I am the Tattooed Historian, and I thank you so much for your continued support of my podcast and everywhere else I am online. A lot of you have found me via the podcast and come on over and followed me on social. Some of you have done the opposite. I appreciate each and every one of you. Today, I have Julia Boyd on to talk about her latest book, A Village in the Third Reich, How Ordinary Lives Were Transformed by the Rise of Fascism. This book has been put out by Pegasus Books. You can find it online wherever you like to get your books from. Previously, she wrote Travelers in the Third Reich, The Rise of Fascism, 1919 to 1945. So we talked mainly about a village in the Third Reich because that's what we were originally going to talk about. But, but she does touch on Travelers in the Third Reich as well. I'd love for you to pick up both books. She has dipped her toe into writing about history, and I'm so glad that she has. Uh, she's done some great work. She's also the author of A Dance with the Dragon, the Vanished World of Peking's Foreign Colony, The Excellent Dr. Blackwell, The Life of the First Woman Physician, and Hannah Riddle, An English Woman in Japan. Previously, Julia was a trustee in the Winston Churchill Memorial Trust, and she now lives in London. And it was so great to hear from someone across the pond about the Second World War, and even after the First World War. We talked a little bit about the men coming home from the front of the First World War. Really excited to have her on. She was a great interview, and I hope that you enjoy our conversation about a village in the Third Reich, how ordinary lives were transformed by the rise of fascism. Julia, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate your time. And for everyone who's listening, we had a little minor hiccup with the technology, but we got over it. So thank you so much, Julia, for your help. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to have you on. And I thoroughly enjoyed your book, A Village in the Third Reich, How Ordinary Lives Were Transformed by the Rise of Fascism. And uh, this one really hit home for me because I have some ancestry in Southern Germany. And I've always wondered... Uh, how that particular part of Germany reacted to so many things going on within a generation or two. Uh, when did this book really start to kick off for you? When did this really start to uh, become a thing for you to dive into? Well, it, it sort of emerged from a book I'd written earlier called Travelers in the Third Reich. Um, and after I'd finished that book, I thought, well, that was that. I was all done with the with the Nazis. But then I met this very nice woman from a village called Oberstdorf in, in Bavaria. And she asked me if I would write a book about her village during the Nazi period. And, you know, at first I wasn't terribly keen on the idea because it seemed to me rather arrogant to think that as a sort of random Brit, I could roll up at this tightly knit Catholic community and say, um, you know, I'm going to write a book about your village at the most difficult and sensitive time of its history. But but, you know, I sort of uh, was slightly intrigued with the idea and I thought, well, there's no harm in going and visiting the village. And when I was there, it soon became apparent that there are quite a few people who were very keen on the idea. And I met some of the villagers and and there was already a book. Um, the German uh, communities are very good at recording their history. And uh, Oberstdorf uh, had formed a committee because they decided they must make a formal record of their 
of the Third Reich, of the village during the Third Reich. And so uh, my friend, Katy Patel, um, had already written a book that was full of useful information and particularly important for me were the interviews she conducted in the early part of this century, because by the time I came on the scene, most of those people were dead. And um, so it was uh, important for me to have those that, that connection with the people who'd actually lived and uh, survived the Third Reich. Mm. It was very interesting to me. You, you bring up the idea of it being a very strong Catholic area of Germany, which it, it was and still is to an extent. Um, that really uh, opened doors for me to try to understand a little bit of the backlash to the rise of Nazism that I hadn't really thought about before. A little bit of a, a, a stubbornness at going up against the status quo, if you will, what was going on in Germany at the time. But well before that rise, uh, you have a lot of men coming home from the Western Front in the First World War. What was that like for Oberstdorf in the at the end of the Great War? Well, I think I would never try to claim that Oberstdorf is in, in any sense a typical village. I mean, clearly it isn't. It's right down on the southern border of Germany, most southern village in Germany. And every small community, every village, every small town had its own particular relationship with, uh, with the Nazi regime. But uh, I think one thing I would say that probably most communities have in common is that within them, there was a very mixed response to the Nazis. Mm. You know, starting at one end of the spectrum, there were people who were very enthusiastic, joined the party early and remained devoted Nazis right through to the bitter end and even beyond. But then there were people who started out as very enthusiastic Nazis. But when they saw the true colours of the regime, um, they lost faith, if you like, and changed their minds. But it was very hard to change your mind or to resist or to protest or to um, show any kind of um, dissent, because the likelihood is you would end up in somewhere like Dachau. And then there were other people who hated the Nazis from the start. Um, and there were others who just wanted to keep their heads down and somehow survive. So even in a, an Oberstdorf's population was about 4,000 before the war um, and rose to about 8,000 with evacuees and refugees during the war. But I would say that even in that small population, there was the same diversity. So the veterans, to answer your question, coming back from uh, the Great War, you would see that same um, diversity of response. Some veterans, and not so much in Oberstdorf, but many veterans were so frustrated uh, and furious at the outcome, um, and they felt they'd been sold down the river, as it were, by, by the politicians in Berlin. So a lot of them joined the SA became stormtroopers and very enthusiastic supporters of Hitler. But others, and there were a number of these in Oberstdorf, who just wanted to put the Second World War behind them. They didn't like Hitler. They didn't like his politics. And they remained true independent spirits, men of the mountains, if you like. Mm -hmm. With the Weimar uh, rising after the First World War, we in the West often think about the, the cabarets and the clubs and the, and, and the jaunty ways, if you will, of the Weimar, when in fact we're just thinking of probably what's going on in Berlin. We're not thinking right. about what's happening in Oberstdorf. What was life like in, during the Weimar for those in Oberstdorf? And did that kind of lead to the rise of the ideas of the Nazi party in that area? 
Well, you've put your, your finger on something very important. I think you're absolutely right. We think of Weimar as being a thrilling time of, um, you know, of, of, of cinema and new music and theatre and Brecht and Hindemith and all, all these, and architecture particularly. But of course, down in Oberstdorf um, and in much of Germany, it was a very different take on Weimar. What they saw was weak government. Um, there were something like 50 different parties in the Reichstag. So, uh, and and not only was it a weak government, it wasn't standing up to the French, who the Germans hated, um, and they, they just had no confidence in the government at all. So they were longing for strong government, and that is, of course, what Hitler promised. So um, although they were not particularly keen on the Nazis um, at the beginning, uh, people did feel that Hitler was the kind of leader that Germany needed to restore its international prestige and put it back at the top table of nations, if you like. I mean, I think myself that um, national humiliation is perhaps as a driver of conflict, sometimes underestimated um, because uh, the sense of humiliation after the First World War as a result of the Treaty of Versailles uh, was immensely strong. And although people were close to starvation, although they were mired in grief at the loss of lost ones, although um, there was insurrection in many German cities, the Quakers who traveled around in Germany immediately after the First World War and had conversations with all kinds of people on trains and things, said the thing that seemed to really grip the Germans most was the, the humiliation that their country was now regarded as a, a kind of a pariah and so Hitler seemed to so many Germans to be the one politician who could restore Germany's prosperity and prestige. When Hitler becomes chancellor in 1933 and they start to uh, bring his power into the local regions of Germany all throughout, get that web of Nazism throughout the country, uh, how does that rise of getting on, let's say, in the, in the the thoughts of the mayor or a, a town council or someone like that. How does that start to emulate in Oberstdorf? Well, um, the Nazis brought in after the 1933 March election, the legislation was brought in very rapidly that mm -hmm. basically um, put Nazi tentacles into every aspect of, of people's lives. And certainly the governance of a village like Oberstdorf. So the old councillors, the old guard, if you like, the men who had run the village very competently and had seen it through the very difficult times of the war years and the post-war years were suddenly kicked out. Uh, a Nazi mayor was imposed on the village. He was an outsider. So that was not something that went down very well. Um, and the first Nazi mayor was, there was a big, a big um, fight and he was sort of pretty much ousted. And the second uh, Nazi mayor, who was to remain mayor from 1934 right through to the end, was a very different character. He was he understood the the difficulties and the nuances. And although he had joined the Nazi Party and gave very robust Nazi speeches in the marketplace and so on, he soon realized he was a decent man, and he realized that the regime was not really what he had hoped for. And so, as I said earlier, he couldn't have really resisted. He had a family. Uh, he had a son who um, uh, was epileptic. If he had stood up and said and tried to resist in any way or protest, he would have simply been um, 
imprisoned or even guillotined. So um, what he did um, to manage his loss of faith in the Nazis, if you like, was simply to try and mitigate the worst um, acts where he could. So he helped protect the handful of Jews in the village. He um, he 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 um, stopped people being he protected people and stood up for people who were arrested for some minor infringement. And at the end of the war, when he was under strict orders to execute anybody who wanted to surrender, he absolutely didn't. So he 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 was a, a, mo a moderate Nazi, if you like. And I think by the end of the war had completely lost faith but he was sort of stuck with it. And I think that probably happened to a great many Germans across the country. It's such a strange concept to uh, hear the thought of a moderate Nazi. And, I mean, uh, I mean, you know, and, and we're kind of towing a fine line when we discuss this as historians, right? Where, where we're saying this, we're not making a generalization. We're saying, okay, there could be different strata of moderation within this. Uh, do you think it was a way for him to basically stay alive as well? Absolutely. Where but he's I, like, I, I know this, I know his population is against this, but I got, I'm far enough away from Berlin to try to stay alive think, and remain in power. Well, I, I, I think, I mean, I was born, I'm, just after the war, I was born in 1948. So I grew up um, against the backdrop of the war. My parents both fought in it. Parents of all my friends had fought in the war. The war was a, a, a big subject uh, when I was a child. And um, I was brought up very much to think of it in terms of black or white, you know, monsters and heroes. Right. And um, in a way, part of the purpose of this book, I think, was to explore the grey areas, because as we all know, life is not black and white. Most of us live in in a sort of compromise area. And I, I think it's been rather under um, explored that there were people who may have started out, as I said, very, um, very supportive of Hitler for, for, for the reasons I've just been talking about, but then really did change their minds and but were powerless to do anything about it. And I think Mayor Ludwig Fink, who is the man I'm talking about, was uh, one of those. And um, I, I suspect that, as, as I said, there are probably there were probably many Germans who were caught in the gray area, who were neither monsters nor heroes, but just trying somehow to stay alive and get through this thing. Mm. Did Oberstdorf send any of its young off to war uh, right away when, when, oh, the, yes. when the second I mean, world war pulled up i mean yes the um, the, the, the there was a very strict call up policy that was was um implemented oh i think even before the war began in in 1939 so there was no escape if you were a young man and even as a young woman you were sent off to um to to um farms and to armament factories and they used to send these young women off miles away from their homes. Many of them had never left their villages. So it, it must have been deeply unpleasant for them. But all the young were mobilized and uh, there really wasn't a very easy way of getting out of it. Mm -hmm. the, the persons I'm thinking of uh, are those who are sent off to the Eastern Front because yeah. They yeah. they are they're used to mountainous terrain and they're actually mountain troops, correct? That are put yes. into German service. Yes, absolutely. They they are uh, really deeply involved in Operation Barbarossa, the mm -hmm. the advance into the Soviet Union or into Russia, uh, who was an ally 
uh, to them at one time and they, and they suddenly are not an ally. Uh, what was that experience like for not only the soldiers, but the families at home to hear about this attack on uh, the Soviet Union? Well, I, I was very lucky um, in, in as much as I was given access to two diaries kept by um, soldiers, one of them an officer, one of them not. And um, they both fought in the uh, 99th Regiment of the 1st Mountain Division, which was the regiment that most Oberstdorfers fought in. Um, there were probably a couple of hundred Oberstdorf young men who fought in that regiment. And with these diaries, I was able to track them right the way from day one of the war right through to the, to the end, um, in, in certainly in Russia and in the Balkans and in the Blitzkrieg in, the, in Europe. Um, so I had a, an extraordinary window into what it was like. And it, it was, you know, absolutely horrifying. There's no, no question of it. Um, as, for the, as far as the civilian population was concerned, when it was announced that um, German troops had invaded Russia, I think it was a, 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 a terrible moment for many people because they realized then, you know, they'd always been promised that this was going to be a quick, uh, decisive war. And it looked like that way because the the, the uh, achievements of the Blitzkrieg were quite astonishing. Um, and even people who didn't support Hitler were proud of the fact that, you know, the soldiers were fighting this extraordinarily quick and effective war. But, of course, Russia was very different. And um, the casualty figures w were instantly climbing and... Uh, this was very depressing. And then, of course, um, the war turned against um, Germany and other fronts. And I, I think the turning point was, for many people, uh, their, their fear that this war was not going to come out the way Hitler had promised began with the invasion of Russia. Mm. You wrote in a book that some of the men who are going off to the Eastern Front and involved in Operation Barbarossa are seeing uh, flat land for the first time, basically. <laughs> they're used to mountainous terrain, but they're also seeing how people live in that region. Yeah. And it almost reinforces the propaganda that, Absolutely. They, that they are living the, the prime life that's not those on the East. Yeah, you're, you again, you've absolutely um, struck a chord there because these young people were brainwashed from a very young age. You know, they joined the junior branches of the Hitler Youth and the Bundesdeutsche Mädel at the age of 10. And then they graduated to the senior branch. And certainly in the early 30s, it was all really rather good fun. It was a bit like the Boy Scouts. Um, you know, they, they sat around bonfires singing songs, Nazi songs, and... They went on camping trips and um, they, you know, and, but, but the brainwashing went on constantly so that they were told that they were the, you know, the master race and that particularly people in Eastern Europe were, were beasts and Jews were animals and all the rest of it, which you know all too well. Um, but um, so when they actually started marching across Poland and saw these incredibly poor villages and uh, children with hardly any clothes and no food. It, it must have felt that, that this was actually true, that these, um, that what they'd been told about the low standard of living and everything in Eastern Europe was actually true. Um, but at some point, 
they, you know, to begin with, they used to feed the Polish children that came into their nightly camps and things and show real humanity. But that seems to have um, disappeared and they became brutalized and committed. Certainly in the Balkans, the German troops um, committed some particular, I'm talking about the first mountain division particularly, uh, which is where the Oberstdorf boys were mostly fighting. And they undoubtedly committed atrocities. There's no question about it. Others perhaps behaved with as much humanity as was possible under the circumstances, but all of them were young. All of them had been brainwashed. And when I sat in the memorial chapel of the um, um, in, in Oberstdorf, which is right next to the church, you looked at this long, long columns of dead soldiers. Uh, they'd all died horrible deaths. Um, it's a, a sobering thing to do to sit in a, a chapel like that and look at all those dead young men and all the horror that they caused um, under this evil regime. Mm -hmm. at, the, at the same time that all this is occurring on the Eastern Front, we see the rise of the number of people being sent to Germany and within German environs uh, to be held as basically slave labor. Slave laborers, uh, yes. Yeah. Did did the people in Oberstdorf, even though they're they're separated from other portions of the region uh, due to the geography, did they know what was going on as far as people were coming in to be used for forced labor? Well, one of the reasons I wasn't particularly enthusiastic um, about writing this book at the beginning was because I thought, well, what on earth can Oberstdorf tell us about the Third Reich? I mean, there it is, a little mountain village right down at the bottom of Germany, um, the war must have largely passed it by. Well, I was completely wrong about that because um, I was fascinated to really discover that there was hardly a single aspect of the Second World War uh, and the Third Reich that didn't touch Oberstdorf one way or an another. And um, absolutely they knew what was going on. There were a lot of these big camps that we've all heard of, like um, Dachau and Belsen and Auschwitz and so on, had sub-camps. Um, they spawned sometimes, you know, dozens of these camps. And there were two or three of them um, close to Oberstdorf. Um, there was a, a Waffen-SS training camp just outside the village, which was built and run by prisoners seconded from Dachau. Um, there was, and then at, towards the end of the war, BMW and Messerschmitt evacuated all their manufacturers out because the by then, the Allies could reach Munich and Augsburg and bomb bomb them. So suddenly they started in the next door valley to Oberstdorf, where they'd been, the women had been milking cows. They suddenly found themselves making parts for the jet, uh, is it the 262 jet engine, which was the first jet to be used in warfare. And so, yes, there were these manufacturers all around Oberstdorf making um, um, weapons and there was the, the, the labor camps, and then there were the refugees and the evacuees. First of all, there were the evacuees from the Ruhr who came, many of them were evacuated to Oberstdorf, and then there were the refugees uh, fleeing east to escape the Russians, the advancing Russians. Um, and then just north of Oberstdorf, there's a sort of rather sinister fortress building that's still there at Zonthofen. And this was a sort of Nazi stronghold. And People like Himmler would come there to brief the local Nazis on things like the final solution. And it's hard to believe that, um, you know, what he was telling 
people within the confines of this castle didn't leak out. So, yes, um, and also, so, of course, soldiers were coming home on leave all the time. And they, although they wouldn't have spoken the, about these things publicly, when they were, you know, with their families or out in the mountains walking with their friends, they must have unburdened themselves. There was one soldier um, who was a member of a particularly unpleasant uh, unit called the Einsatzgruppe. Um, and they went in after the Wehrmacht when they went into and conquered a new territory and murdered Jews and gypsies and anybody else the Nazis didn't like. And he was uh, responsible for organizing the murder of 700 gypsies in Crimea. So, you know, when he went back to Oberstdorf, did he tell his wife? Did he sit in a pub with a, a mate and tell him about it? Must have done. Um, and so, yes. The answer to your question is um, absolutely, in my view, the villagers knew what was going on and in a much more detail than you might imagine from um, a village so far away from the center of action. We hear a lot in the modern era about uh, conflict regions creating refugee crises and Oberstdorf seemed to experience that, as you said, refugees from the fronts were coming in in large numbers. They didn't want to be around the fighting, number one. They didn't want to be under the sphere of influence of the Russians either. Uh, what kind of a strain did that put on the local population, even though it was a vacation spot, a tourist spot? Now you have people who are not on vacation. They are there to, to survive. Oh, it put a huge strain on them. I mean, for a start, you know, it was a mountain community and they didn't really like outsiders anyway, um, even, even from Germany, let alone, um, um, you know, foreigners. And of course, after um, Germany's surrender, suddenly the, the, the tables were turned and it was up to the villagers to find, they got the, the, the slave laborers and the, um, the Russians and the Jews, all the people they had been brainwashed for decades to despise and hate were suddenly the people that they had to look after and supply with food. And immediately after the war, um, many Germans were very, very close to the point of starvation. There was really no food. And interestingly enough, it was a um, British publisher, Victor Galantz, who was himself Jewish, who went to Germany and became aware of the terrible state of the German civilian population. Um, and he was one of the first people to bring this to the public attention and, and and do something about it. And then, of course, there was the Marshall Plan. But in the immediate months after, after the um, um, war ended, it was, it was very difficult. Um, suddenly, they, they the Germans, in a way, it, 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 it made the Germans feel they were victims, which perhaps stopped them or prevented them from really examining their own uh, culpability, how much they had um, contributed to the tragedy of the, the Nazi regime. Um, and, that, you know, just at the time when people should have been asking these questions, they were so focused on trying to um, stay alive and, and, and put their lives back together that those questions weren't really asked, I think, until very much later, when it was in some ways too late to ask the people who had been most uh, involved. Mm -hmm. uh, the whole book is strong. I don't want you to think otherwise with this question, but the one strong point I really enjoyed reading about was that post-war era, uh, because I'm a, I'm a 
a stickler for historical memory. I like how we try to remember the past. And it was almost like a, a an early form of that. How, how do you remember what you just went through? Um, writing that particular portion of the book in that immediate post-war years, did you see anything that was still lingering in the modern era from that mindset of the post-war era? Uh, not really. I mean, I think probably a large part of the village not particularly interested in this book or, or perhaps even aware of it. It was, interestingly enough, it was um, a handful of villagers who formed this committee who were the ones who were really determined to um, to try and get to the bottom of it. And the reason they did it was because they really wanted to try to understand how it could have happened. You know, how how is it possible that their families, their friends, um, the village, their fellow countrymen, could have have fallen um, in thrall to to Hitler, and so I think. But they were all older people. Um, how much young Oberstdorfers think about all these things? I really would, would. I'm not in a position to answer. Um, but I think that was the motivation for the people I met in Oberstdorf to 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 initiate first the the book that they wrote for wrote for the village, and then to ask me to write this new one. Um, and I, I don't know that there are ever answers. I think all one can do is to try and put oneself in the mindset of people at the time and realize that it is a, a kaleidoscope, that it's not just a clear cut picture. There wasn't a straight line. And as I've said earlier several times, people may have well started out with very strong Nazi sympathies, but by the end of the war, hated Hitler. I mean, that would be natural. You, you you like someone when you think you're on the winning team. And then when you see what a total and utter disaster it's been, um, you, you you change your mind. Mm. And I'm sure that um, was rife in, in Oberstdorf. There were some people who, who stayed committed Nazis right to the end and no doubt remained so. But, um, um, but I think there were, you know, most people just wanted to forget Hitler, wanted to forget that National Socialism had ever happened and somehow get on with their lives. So people didn't talk about it, mm-hmm. not until much later. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we briefly brought up your previous work, and I'd like to do that in a few moments we have left, because I want people to know that this is a, a, a almost a series of its own, that I, I want people to understand what's out there. Uh, you you previously wrote, previously wrote Travelers in the Third Reich, The Rise of Fascism, 1919-1945. Uh, how did that work come about, and uh, how does it kind of connect with this one in any way? Well, yeah, I mean, I... I'm what you might call an accidental historian. I, 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 it was suggested to me that I write about people traveling in, in the Third Reich. And I thought it was a completely lunatic idea. I mean, the, <laughs> the Nazi period is, is, is a period of history that's probably been written about more in my lifetime than any other. And so the idea that I would have anything to add to the mix seemed to me complete nonsense. But I, I, I was sort of intrigued and I did start um, doing a bit of research and um, I was absolutely astonished at how much what I call raw, unfiltered history is out there in the shape of diaries and letters and memoirs and obscure books and so on. And I became hooked. I mean, it, it was, it's very addictive. And I, I sometimes feel I'm more of a, a detective than a, than a writer because it's finding these things um, that is, is quite hard, um, you know, to find... Um, I, I didn't want to 
use material that had been written after the war because then people look back um, and hindsight, as we all know, is very different to what you write when you're actually in the middle of it. But I suppose what connects the two books in a way is what I perhaps unconsciously even strive to do is to try to put myself in the shoes of the people who were there at the time and see it through their eyes. How did it feel then, not looking back? Um, and, and, and I think in that way, you, I, I, I don't have any answers. I wouldn't pretend for one moment that I've produced any answers to the big questions. How could this have happened? How is it possible? But it is, I think, the greatest tragedy in human history. Um, I think it's hard to think of anything that had such reach and such horror on such a scale and has had so much impact on world history than the Third Reich. So although perhaps you could argue there are just too many books coming out about it, it is a subject that I think, in a sense, we're going to go on looking at and wondering about and asking questions for forever. Mm -hmm. um, and my contribution is tiny, but I think what I'm hoping, what I hope from those two books that maybe I've just made a little bit of difference is to get people to think about what would I have done? How would I have reacted? And that, if they ask that question, I think it's it becomes easier to try and understand how this whole thing could have happened. Mm. That's very well said. Thank you, Julia, for that. I really appreciate your time coming on and talking with me today uh, about this very important subject, this microcosm of history, if you will, of how is this little town impacted by such a huge uh, series of events and uh, that's something that I would love for people to to read more about in both of your books. And uh, I really appreciate your time today. Well, thank you very much. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Thank you.